<laughs> uh, good morning, church. We do want to get a few more people seated, so if there is some space around you, uh, I think we'll be able to see it a little bit better now uh, that you're seated. Hey, we do have a, a great uh, service. It's great to welcome some new members. Great to have you here, uh, here for the Word. But you can see that to my right, we have the baptistry set up, and uh, we will be baptizing uh, three at the end of this service. Um, after the message, we baptized one um, uh, in the uh, 9 o'clock service, and we're baptizing eight. First time we've ever done this, we're baptizing eight uh, teenagers at youth on Tuesday night. And so we're, uh, yeah, praise the Lord, yeah, for that. Amen. All right, well, as we get into God's Word, I want to talk about what it means to have something at the center of your uh, life. To have something at the center of your life is to say that that thing is the priority in your life, that it's the governing law or it's the guiding principle of your life, or to say it another way, it's the foundation of your life. It's the thing you fall on when you go through a trouble, the thing that still uh, grounds you. And if I were to put you, if I were to survey every one of you right now and put you on the spot and ask you the question, what is at the center of your life? What is your number one uh, guiding priority? What is your guiding principle? What is the governing law of your life? What's the one thing that you would say is foundational or which grounds you no matter what you go through in life? Well, that's an important thing to think about as we come to Revelation 14 this morning, where an angel delivers what is called in the passage, the eternal gospel. And he's delivering it so that it would be proclaimed to those, this is a, right out of the passage, those who dwell on the earth. You and I dwell on the earth, and everyone who's ever lived as a human being throughout all of history has lived on the earth. And this gospel was given that it might be proclaimed. And that it is called an eternal gospel in this chapter says a lot about the nature of it. First of all, it is good news. That's the gospel part. But beyond that, it is it is eternal good news. It is good news for all eternity. It is good news. It was good news in eternity past. It's good news right now. And it will be good news on and into eternity and forever and ever. And it is this eternal gospel that must be at the center of our lives. If, if we are to enjoy eternity as God intends for us to enjoy eternity, but beyond that, if we are to survive the looming disaster that is already evident in our world today, a world falling apart even as we live in it. And this disaster is robbing humanity of its hope. And what we have here in, Rev in Revelation 14 are several short visions, all of which are part of an extended interlude that we've been in for a little while in our study of Revelation. The blowing of the seventh trumpet back in chapter 11, all the way to chapter 16, where we have the pouring out of the seven bowls of God's wrath. We're in this interim period, this interlude that is showing the patience of God as he continues to roll out his judgment on the world. And so uh, if you have your Bibles in front of you, whether electronic or paper, Revelation 14, I'm going to read these 20 verses, and then we'll start working through what God has for us today. Revelation 14. This is, of course, the Apostle John receiving these revelations. He writes this, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, 
and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgin. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured, out, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of, his, of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's the word of God. Amen? Amen. Awesome to read that. Well, in your notes, you're going to notice this. We must believe the eternal gospel. And let's look at this first, because it offers the only way to be redeemed. Thinking of surveys this week, and I read an extended survey, um, and I want to pull out one part of it for us, but one of the questions that pollsters like to ask about religion when they're doing religious surveys 
is the, is the question about Jesus being the only way. And the reason why they ask this question is because it's such an offensive thing in our postmodern culture to think that your religion or your way of doing things is exclusive, that it's the only way. And so this question comes up all the time to assess how do people believe um, about these things? Well, the challenge for us is not so much what the world believes, but how much of the culture is infiltrating the church and rubbing off on us. And so in this survey that I read, it, it surveyed, it's an American survey, it surveyed a broad cross-section of Americans, but then it also was able to distill down the data, and we found something very alarming in what was said. The survey was done by Ligonier Lifeway. You may know those organizations. They asked people to agree or disagree with this statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That was the statement. And people in the survey had to agree or disagree with that statement. And again, I could understand how a lot of people outside the church would say one thing or another about that. But here's what the survey revealed. Shockingly, 56% of American evangelicals think, in essence, that all paths lead to heaven. 56% of people who identify as evangelical in the United States agreed with the statement that God accepts the worship of all religions. Now, first of all, whether we want to be associated with those who call themselves American evangelicals, that's a whole different story something we can explore in a different day. And there's a lot of good reasons why we would not want to identify with that particular group. But for those who are gospel-centered Christians, who might be very much in that category, for those who consider themselves gospel-centered Christians, they will understand how wrong that statement is. They will understand that Re Revelation, in fact, reveals, as we study this, as Re Revelation reveals what the entire Bible teaches, namely that some people are in and some people are out. It matters, in fact, it matters what you believe. So let's start in verse 1. John said, I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, that's a reference to Jesus, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now we saw the 144,000 back in chapter 7. We settled on the understanding that this is the full number of Israelis who will come to faith in Jesus Christ at the last day. These are Jews who finally come to the place where they understand that the one that they had rejected as their Messiah for all of these centuries was in fact, is in fact their Messiah, their long awaited Messiah. So they embrace him and here it's not, it's not specifically 144,000, it's a representative number of the full number of all of those who will actually believe, the perfect number the God-ordained number of all who will actually believe. They finally turn to their Messiah. But we also noted that this 144,000 are also in some ways representative of all believers at the end, and that they have a distinction about them. They're marked with the Father and the Lamb's own name. And so some are marked with the Father's name, and as we saw in chapter 13, some are marked with the mark of the beast, either on their head or on their hand. And so when we look at that, we see automatically, as we see in other passages of Scripture, there are some who are marked for God and some who are not. 
And so God does not, to take the statement off the survey, God does not accept the worship of all religions. Now John continues, describing in verses 2 and 3, a heavenly worship service. We've seen several of these as we've looked, worked through Revelation. But in this case, this 144,000, this perfect number of believers, were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Now notice, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is a song that only those who have been redeemed can know and can sing. And so again, we see the exclusivity of this. There are some who know this song and there are some who don't know this song. They have a song that others could not learn because there were others outside of this group who had not been redeemed. Not that I want to belabor the point, but some are redeemed and some are not redeemed. And those that were had been made holy so that they could be described in the way that we see them described in verses four and five, blameless, justified before the Lord. Not defiled themselves with women for their virgins and in their mouth no lie was found, they're blameless. And John says this in the sense that, that they, they've not defiled themselves spiritually. In other words, they've remained faithful to God. They haven't perverted themselves or destroyed themselves by going after the beast or Babylon, as we'll see in a few minutes. They've not bowed down to the beast. Instead, and I love this phrase in verse four, you can look back there. I love this phrase. Instead, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And when we think of something that should be at the very center of our lives, like what centers you, what's at the center, we could simply adopt this phrase and say, this is what's at the center of my life. I follow the lamb. Wherever he goes. In fact, these, the verse goes on to say, these have been redeemed from mankind. And even in saying that, again, it, it, it makes the implication that some have not been redeemed. So if you believe the eternal gospel and respond to the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, you will be among the redeemed and you yourself will know this song. But if you pursue other religions, including a religion of your own making, which is so fashionable today, just make up stuff on your own and believe that. If you believe or follow or pursue some other religion, or you pursue no religion, which by the way does not exist because everyone worships something. There is no such thing as a person who follows no religion. If you pursue other religions, you will find no song in your mouth, no song in your heart, and you will find yourself on the outside. And that is beyond a tragedy. You must believe the eternal gospel because it offers the only way to be redeemed. And then notice this about the gospel having been made available to all. The gospel is available to all. The offer has been made to everyone throughout all of history. Throughout the book of Revelation, we have been seeing God delaying, delaying, delaying. Here we are 14 chapters into this revelation of the end. And you kind of think at times, you know, this could have been wrapped up in a couple of chapters. Good and evil, separate them out. 
judge the evil, be done with it, let the, those who have been redeemed go into their eternity. It could have all been wrapped up in two, three chapters max. But God is delaying, God is delaying. We see further descriptions, more angels, more message, more opportunities for people to repent and to turn to God in the midst of everything that he's doing. We see his delay here in chapter 14, his patience, his withholding of the final wrath in the hope that more will be converted. And so John writes, verse six, I saw another angel flying directly overhead, notice with an eternal gospel. What is this gospel for? To proclaim, the verse says, to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, those who have not yet believed the gospel, not yet responded to God's kind Offer and this is to be proclaimed, notice, to every nation and every tribe and every language and every people. But here we are in the last book of the New Testament and, and the mission is being re reiterated exactly the same way as it was given to the first disciples. On that hillside, Acts chapter 1, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is about to ascend to the Father. And just before he goes, he sends out this mission. He gives this mission to, to, to the church, to you and to me. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is the mission. So we carry this gospel to every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. We hear in the same echo of the Acts 1-8 mission here in Revelation 14 at the end of the age. And notice it's a global venture. It's for everyone. So like this church does not exist for, for the sole benefit of its members. We're not here just to form a comfortable little religious club that we go to once a week. We have a mission that is not exclusive to the city of Barrie or even the county of Simcoe. We have a mission that is to extend around the world. That's why we belong to the network we belong to that, that reaches around the world to bring the gospel, to plant churches. Because that's the mission that we've been given. It's a global venture. No one is excluded from the offer of the gospel. And if you're a professing Christian, that's your mission. If you're a teenager in high school, you're trying to figure out your life and what your life is all about. I don't know what my life is about. I don't know what I'm supposed This is it. This is your mission. I've settled the question here today for every teenager everywhere. Your mission is to let the Holy Spirit's power come upon you and to be his witnesses to the whole world. If you're in college wasting yours or your parents' money or racking up debt, going to get a degree you're never gonna use and you're at a school you don't even like because you're trying to figure out what life is all about, I'm here to tell you, you could pay me instead. Your mission is to let the Holy Spirit's power come upon you and to be his witnesses in the entire world. You start right there, then everything else is under that umbrella. Where you live, what job you do, where you go to school, who your friends are, who you marry, what you do in your family, what you're like in your neighborhood, all of it, all of it is tucked in under you will be my witnesses to the whole world. That's your mission. 
You're a gospel-centered person. Your life is centered on the gospel, and you want other people around you to have the gospel at the center of their lives too. That's what this is all about. Now, this angel, verse 7, said with a loud voice, and here it is. This is the message that's being proclaimed to people who don't believe yet. This is the eternal gospel. Fear God. Give him glory. Why? Because the hour of judgment has come. It has come. Now again, John is seeing these visions of eternity as we've worked through Revelation. It's been so mind-boggling because we know we've seen things in the Revelations that have already happened. We've seen things that are currently happening and we've seen things that are yet future. We're down here on the timeline trying to figure it all out. A lot of timestamps have been put on these visions, but it all seems to be a bit jumbled in terms of past, present, and future. So we see this, the hour of judgment has come past statement of fact. That's the way John is seeing it. But in reality for us, the time of judgment is still future. So we still have this opportunity to proclaim this message to people. Fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. Give your life to him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. See, anyone can be saved from this judgment simply by Fearing, honoring God, giving your life to him, giving him glory, putting him at the center, worshiping him alone. Anyone. You don't need to reform your life. This is such a, such a terrible thing when people think, you know, in order to come to church, in order to come to God, I have to reform my life. I have to clean some things up. No, you don't. Come to him just as you are. You know, on the one hand, I was reading the prayer requests from last weekend, going through those and praying for uh, all these various requests that you have put in there. And I see some, some weeks that are very, very difficult to read and difficult to pray over because they just speak to the very depth of heartache that some of you are going through. We read about some very severe addictions in these prayer requests. We, we read about uh, severe family breakups. And I think on the one hand, you know what, this is a church. I mean, people ought to have had that kind of stuff cleaned up. How could they be coming week after week and still be addicted to that thing? How could that still be crushing them? How is it that their, their, their relational lives are still a complete disaster? And on one hand, I go like, why haven't they cleaned that up? And on the other hand, I go, I'm so, so, so excited. It's so fantastic that broken people are coming and are being open enough to say, this is the absolute disaster of my life and I need prayer because this is exactly the place you need to be and Jesus is exactly the person you need to come to. Don't think you need to clean it all up before you come. If your life is a mess, you've come to the right place, you've come to the right person. And so simply pledge yourself to Jesus Christ. Pledge yourself, as it says in verse four, to follow the lamb wherever he goes no matter, no matter where that takes you in this life, knowing that it will take you to heaven in the next. Give your life to Jesus Christ. That gospel's available to all. And so anyone can be among those who look to escape the wrath of God. Anyone who hears this gospel and looks to escape the wrath of God. Now, this is a very important point and, and one that's not often spoken of. We're going to spend some time here because we cheapen the message of salvation 
when we make it about overcoming our own sins and the effects of it. And sometimes we think that's all, that's all salvation is about. I'm a sinner, I need to overcome my sin, I need to overcome the effects of sin in my life, and I'll just say this, that is not the primary reason why you are being saved. That is a byproduct of your salvation, but it is not the primary reason. And we cheapen the message of salvation, we cheapen the gospel when we make it about that. Or worse, when we simply make the gospel about overcoming our felt needs. Okay, like I have some like issue in my life and Jesus is a solution to my issue. He may very well be the solution to your issue, but that's not the primary thing we need to emphasize in salvation. Because what's happening in salvation is far more than these pathetically weak assertions often lead people to believe. It's the problem that you think you have the problem that might initially draw you into a relationship with Christ, that is not the real problem for which Christ died. We must escape not our addictions, not our anxieties, not our difficult circumstances. We must escape God himself. We must escape God himself. You heard that right, and some of you are wondering, what's with this guy? We have to escape the wrath of God. That's what this chapter's about. Only we lack what it takes to escape the wrath of God. And what we see in verse eight begins this description of the judgment on Babylon the great. Symbolic of the entire corrupt world system. In fact, the first century readers would have read this, they would have understood this reference to Babylon as a reference to Rome, which was the empire that they were a part of. We read Babylon the Great, or we read about Rome, and we see both of those as being symbolic of the world system that we're a part of. It is a world system that opposes God and is just as evangelistic as we should be, but evangelistic in the sense that it's trying to draw you away from God with every fiber of its being with all of its energy and effort. You see, because the world system has at the center of what it's all about, taking you away from God and instead embracing the immorality that Babylon is characterized by. Notice here, this corrupt world system opposes God. It draws humanity away from God, making all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Again, the mission is to get you to abandon God. And when we think about this, Babylon, Rome, whatever imagery you want to use, is alive and well in the culture today, all around us. The world system is seeking to draw humanity away from God and into all of its perversions and immorality. Now again, the scene here is of a yet future event on our timeline. The judgment also falls on the people who follow after Babylon. So the judgment will come on Babylon itself, on the world system itself, but also on all of those who are lured away. Anyone, verse nine, who worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand. That's, that's the previous chapter, chapter 13, 16 to 18. Now notice both Babylon and the followers of Babylon 
Verse 10, will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. First century wine, commonly drunk, um, but when they poured it to serve, they would always dilute it with some water. They would never drink it full strength. And the commentator I read said, if anybody was drinking full strength wine, it was because the full intent of what they wanted to do was become intoxicated, that it wasn't meant to be social at that point. So wine was almost always always diluted. And here, the wine of God's wrath is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. This is his building wrath at at all of the rebellion and the opposition to God and his people. Further described here as being tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the land. This is Babylon and her followers both suffering this judgment. Verse 11, at last forever and ever, there is no rest Park that thought. No rest, day or night, for these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now listen, we cannot, when you read this, you understand that we cannot at all minimize our understanding of the wrath of God. Even if it is an uncomfortable topic, and it's uncomfortable. And, 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 and this is why we study the scriptures as we do verse by verse through entire books so that the preacher isn't tempted to say, you know what, that's an uncomfortable truth. I'd rather not preach that. I'd rather preach the love of God today. How many people would rather I be preaching the love of God today? Because it's such an uncomfortable topic. We can't ignore or minimize this. The wrath of God must be appeased if we're to be saved. We need a solution to this problem, not to the problem of our addictions, not to the problem of our anxieties, not to the problem of our relational disasters. We need a solution to the problem of the wrath of God. The vision continues, verse 14, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. This is either Jesus himself or an angel doing this on his behalf, but it's under the authority of Christ who is the judge. After which, verse 17, they gathered the grape harvest, another metaphor, harvested the earth and they threw it into the great winepress. Note, the winepress of the wrath of God. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle. When you, do the, when you do the math on this and you understand the scope and dimension of what he's describing here, it would be as if the measurements had been done. It would be as if the entire land of Israel had six feet of blood flooding the entire country. And the picture for us is to be something that's all-encompassing, something that's overwhelming, that just shatters our senses as we think about it. The wrath of God is complete and wholesale, and there's no escaping it. I realize we're diving deep into our theology here, but we're doing it of necessity. We must understand how God's wrath is the very real obstacle to our salvation. And how he alone could make provision to overcome that obstacle. John, who is receiving this revelation and who is writing it to the churches, also wrote several other letters. And in 1 John, he wrote this. And this is love. 
Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. So you don't come to salvation by loving God. Our testimony should not be at a certain point, I came to an understanding of Jesus and I loved him as if you were the initiator of this thing. It's not that we loved God. It's not that any of us could even have the capacity to love God. It's that he loved us. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, notice, to be the propitiation for our sins. That's an important word. If you carry an NIV Bible, you're going to see instead of that word propitiation, you're going to see the word atoning sacrifices, uh, atoning sacrifice, which captures some sense of the word. But Ligon Duncan gives a wonderful definition that will simplify this. Propitiation means averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. That captures it in one line, averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. It refers to Duncan says, to the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment of our sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is the gospel. So what we're seeing in Revelation 14 with those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes is the averting of God's wrath to which Babylon and her followers, by the way, are still subject. Now, why? Why is this so important to talk about? I'm going to give you two reasons. First, as I said earlier, we do not want to cheapen the eternal gospel in any way. And we're often in danger of this. John Stott wrote, It would be hard to exaggerate the differences between the pagan and the Christian views of propitiation or we could say salvation there, how a person gets saved. In the pagan perspective, human beings try to placate their bad-tempered deities with their own poultry offerings. Let's pause there for a second to think about this because we're not talking just about paganism. We're talking about how most people view their relationship with God today. That it's always about the balances and as long as I do more good things than bad things, God's gonna be cool with me. That if only I could cancel out the bad things by doing good things. And this is how people are bargaining with God and how people think they're going to get into a relationship with God. And it's paganism. You could be putting all kinds of Christian words around it, but if you think there's any bargaining with God, if you think you have any capacity whatever to placate him by what you do, you're a pagan. Not Christian. You haven't appeased him at all. According to Christian revelation, Stott goes on to say, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. And here it is. This is the tweetable. Thus God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Amen? Christian, you ought to reflect every moment of every day on the beauty of that truth. And that should inform your entire life. And you should be so grateful as you approach him day by day in your own personal worship to thank him over and over again for what he has done to bring you to himself. 
We do not want to cheapen the eternal, eternal gospel in any way. And second, we don't want to misrepresent the message to those who dwell on earth who haven't yet responded to the gospel. The whole point of the angel coming and bringing the eternal gospel is that it might be proclaimed again, that those who hadn't yet repented would do so. We don't want to misrepresent this message as we're seeking to witness to others in our day, people in our life or in our sphere of influence. Eric Alexander, a Scottish pastor, said this, the real horror of being outside of Christ is that there is no shelter from the wrath of God. That's the real horror. The real horror is not that you're still caught in your addiction. The real horror is not that your relationships are still a disaster. The real horror is not that you're gripped by anxiety. The real horror is that you're still under the wrath of God. The unbelievers in your life, every last one of them is a citizen of Babylon. And they will be reaped and pressed and their blood will pour out when Christ swings his sharp sickle. We have to tell them. But, but listen, that's not exactly how you start the conversation. <laughs> We're not going to start with the wrath of God. It's not how Jesus started conversations with people that, that he was sharing the good news with. But listen, the reason why we're rehearsing this, the reason why we want to lock this in is because we need to know it when we're going to tell them. We need to know what's at stake here. That when we're sharing the gospel with someone, when we're thinking about possibly inviting them to come here, when we're thinking about building a relationship with a neighbor, you have to understand what's at stake. Your neighbor's under the wrath of God. Your coworkers are under the wrath of God. Your unsaved family members are citizens of Babylon and subject to the wrath of God. You need to know what's at stake. You still want to meet people where they are what Jesus did. Jesus started conversations around matters of felt needs, what was going on in their life at the time. Think of the woman at the well. She was a disaster relationally. Jesus had a conversation with her about that. They took some time to talk through those things, but that's not where it stayed. Nicodemus, Jesus met with this religious leader and he was confused theologically, and he had the fear of man on him. And that's where Jesus started as he shared with him what it meant to be born again. Not to mention those who had physical maladies such as blindness and paralysis who he, whom he healed. He met their most basic felt need for physical healing. Those tormented by demons had those demons cast out. Those who were impoverished had their needs met. The outcasts were met where they were. And then Jesus pointed them to him and to salvation, to the forgiveness of sins, to the necessity of faith. He said to the woman caught in adultery, her accusers all around her, who one by one departed, he said to her, Hey, it's just great that all your accusers are gone. Go and have a great life. 
He met the felt need. He met her where she was. And then he said to her, go and sin no more. Because the spiritual need was greater. And in doing so, with all of these different people throughout all of these gospel accounts, he helped each one escape the wrath of God. And that's our mission too. So escape the wrath of God. And find rest through faith in Jesus. That's what we see finally here. Back to verse 12, we skipped over 12 and 13, working through the chapter. We come back to them now. And, and, and here, what John writes, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. This is the point of why Revelation is being written in the first place. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. John is writing to those first century churches in the midst of persecution and all kinds of trials as a result of their faith in Christ. And John is saying to them, because of these visions, because of what God is going to do, because of these teachings, you can endure They could be encouraged in the face of the persecution and difficulties that arise because of their faith in Jesus. And he related to them in verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And that is definitely an eschatological hope. It's a hope for the end of the age, that we would find our final rest. But it's not just that. Because there's a rest that Jesus gives us now. An ability to rest in the promises of God if we live gospel-centered lives. We'll find that rest even in the midst of a world that is intent on taking us away from God at every moment of the day, but only if we would find our faith in Christ alone. Having worked through the chapter, here's um, how I'd, I'd like to close um, our time together. You can actually just set your Bibles and your notes aside. And I'd like us all in a moment to stand. And if what we've looked at today applies to you if the gospel is already at the center of your life, I've taken the outline and we've crafted it into a statement or a declaration that you can make. So if you're a Christian, you have this statement, you say, I agree with this, then you're going to be able to make this declaration for yourself and affirm this. But it's not just for you because it is possible that there's someone who's in the room right now and we find this so often that the way people are coming to faith in Christ in our church over the years, that very often it happens on any given Sunday while they're sitting right where you're sitting right now. Some have come to the church for years, some months or weeks, and some on their very first Sunday make a decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ and to receive the salvation that he offers. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've heard this and you're saying, I want that. I want to escape the wrath of God and I want the rest that Jesus provides for me. You could make this statement as your declaration of faith in this very moment. So why don't you go ahead and stand with me? And I'm, I'm the way this works when we're reciting things as a church is I just get us started and then like good Anglicans, you just take it from there, okay? Because the Anglicans are the best at this, all right? I believe...
Amen. The bishop would be proud. Let's, let's pray together. Father, by uh, your abundant kindness and grace and love and, Father, your patience, you have made a way for us to be saved. Thank you so much for the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world and who has appeased your wrath on our behalf. As believers, Father, help us to reflect deeply and to have a thankful heart for all that we've heard today. And for those who have not yet believed, Father, help them. Holy Spirit, help them to see not only the horror of following under your wrath, but also the rest that they can have in Jesus Christ if they would exercise simple faith in you. Thank you, Father, for your kindness toward us and for this word that you've given us today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.